0: thank you noah for coming on and joining me on the show today i appreciate you taking the time uh you are a blogger Uh, i have one of the most popular uh, newsletters on substack called no opinion prior to that spent some time as a columnist at bloomberg and in academia at stony brook university Uh, a lot of people know you from twitter uh, others will have read your Substack, but for those who aren't familiar to, uh, with you and, and your background, uh, I think it'd be great to just start with uh, your story from as early as you're willing to start to uh, where you are today and some of the decisions you made along the way. Well, my my story starts with the
1: British comedy Faulty Towers. Do you know that one?
0: I do not, but uh, sounds like an interesting place to start.
1: It was a landmark show. Like comedians will all know Faulty Towers, but my parents were in a hotel. Uh, watching faulty towers and my mom laughed so hard that her water broke and then i was born
0: they so were starting uh, really at the beginning
1: yeah you said yeah start at the beginning Love it. then um other things happened and then eventually i uh 18 years later well i moved to texas six weeks later so i don't remember um that was in oklahoma I actually was born in oklahoma uh lived there six weeks can't remember a bit of it obviously and then um And then went to texas where i grew up and um 18 years later came out to california for college then uh went to japan after that for three years and lived in japan and um you know had silly adventures whatever and then um and then came back to university of michigan for graduate school got a phd in economics uh started my blog while i was a graduate student and um and then went to be a professor for a couple of years at Stony Brook university in New York, uh, continued the blog. Then, um, Bloomberg called me up and offered to pay me to write for them. Uh, so I did that, um, and moved out to California where I've been there since. And then a couple of years ago, I started doing the Substack newsletter and I wouldn't say that it's, you know, taken off. Uh, you know, I look at other Substackers' growth curves and it's this giant surge, you know, like, um, Matt Iglesias or Scott Alexander or some of these other you know Substackers, they just within like a couple months they got six thousand, twelve thousand subscribe paid subscribers or something. And it, for me, you know, I, I started off with like a hundred, like no one was reading, no one was paying for my Substack. And so it's been over two years. It's just been you know a sort of a, a steady, linear, arduous climb for me to reach uh, because I'm just terrible at marketing. I'm just not very good as like a media self-marketing person i guess um but it's steadily grown and so i think that, that means that there's some sort of fundamental uh appeal there although i don't know exactly what it is uh that people like about my writing but you know hopefully they keep liking it
0: yeah it's interesting uh, a couple questions on on the story there but uh i want to start with sort of the, the latest point you made i i looked up something uh maybe didn't do as good of diligence as i had thought but I, I thought that um You know uh no opinion was one of the the more popular uh newsletters on substack maybe that's not the case but i'm curious with um you know it's i think it's certainly one of the more the ones that i see cited more often maybe i just sort of have a bias on the types of people i'm following and and listening to and things but um i think about the marketing god
1: yeah in terms of audience size it is one of the more most popular ones but since i i charge money for fewer posts than other people do um then um yeah, since I since I charge money for fewer ones, I have fewer paid subscribers than some. Like the most mm-hmm. the there's a few big politics sub stackers who have, you know, they make the most money. They make like millions of dollars a year. And um, you know, I don't make millions of dollars a year, although, you know, hopefully at some point. But then um, but then I think that my audience size is is just as large as theirs in terms of how many people are getting my emails in their inboxes every day.
0: I see. And so is there a trade off there where you sort of um, like, obviously, you're aware of the the fact that these people are charging for more of their their articles? Um, are you making a conscious trade off that you want to have the top of the funnel, sort of the free subscribers continue to grow as much as possible? And then you always sort of have the option to toggle on, you know, more paid pieces when you want to? Yeah, sure. I can do that. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in getting a lot of people to read my stuff.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so, you know, rewinding a bit, um, you previously you were at Bloomberg, like you mentioned, you decided to, you had been blogging for years though, continued the blog when you are at Stony Brook, et cetera. Um, I'm curious, you know, the, the decision to move over to Substack and Substack to me at least seems to be somewhat of a um you know a new generation of independent writers um what do you think made it unique what do you like about it what might you change about it just curious to hear your thoughts on the platform haven't been there now for uh, a little over two years I think
1: about Substack itself yeah um well so Substack's uh main you know advantage is um email distribution they do free email distribution and also uh, growth. So, so Substack is very good about building an ecosystem. So, you know, if you're on Substack, then other people, uh, you know, people who read other Substacks will see you through recommendations, and um, you know, whatever. Uh, and then, and then, there's various methods by which Substack encourages people who subscribe to one. Substack to subscribe to others so that they build this little community ecosystem things like that so that's useful for for growing your audience. And so those two things are really worth it for me. Um in terms of the you know the bargain like it's a it's a good service. They also help you like set up the business and payment side and all this stuff and they they provide a few other services uh to like help the the writers. Um so it's it's a good deal. But basically I think the the deeper question is the question about where the newsletter, the, the sort of advent of newsletters um, has, you know, where that leaves the media ecosystem, the print media ecosystem, because why, you know, people might think, why do you need the New York Times? Why do you need whatever? Um, there's a couple answers to that. So news coverage is not going to migrate and be independent because news coverage is a collective cooperative enterprise for which the benefits that you get from working with a large organization and the specialization within that organization makes a lot of sense. Maybe sometime in the future we'll have instant smooth outsourcing where you can just like hire editors and checkers and all the other people and marketers and just at the touch of a button and that ecosystem may grow and then ultimately displace all sort of integrated news organizations like Bloomberg or whatever that may happen. But, um, in, but for now, you can't really get news from independent writers and the the independent journalists are often that you see are often, um, one of, of two types. They're either access journalists who just know a few people they have a couple good sources and they keep calling those, those few good sources up to get a scoop really quick in a narrow area. Right. You see that. And then you also see some people who are of questionable quality who are quote unquote journalists who are actually opinion writers masquerading as journalists. Um, and I won't name names, obviously, but then the the quality of their information is very low. And because um, anyone can call themselves a journalist and just claim facts and, you know, cite rumors. And that, a lot of that does happen. And um, then, but I think that where, where Substack really shines is not for people who report the news. It's for opinion writers like me and an opinion writer. I, I've. I've long maintained that opinion writers are a different layer of media from journalists, that opinion writers are not journalists. Uh, we don't gather information. We, we, we gather some information in terms of like reading papers. Um, we don't really gather primary information. What we do is we collate and assemble the information that other people gather, whether it's by writing an academic paper or writing a journalistic news article or whatever, or another, even another blog post. Um, And we analyze it and we synthesize it into um, comprehensible, you know, packaged, I could say narratives, but it's really just analysis. So what we actually are is more like a CIA analyst. So CIA analysts take all the information that's gathered by the agents in the field and um, and they sort of synthesize that into some easily comprehensible narratives about like what's going on in other countries and then send that to their higher ups and um and so that's basically what uh opinion writer the people we call opinion writers are actually analysts and they're doing that for the general public sort of like an open source you know cia analyst kind of thing i was surprised when i met some cia analysts to find out that they had the same job as me (laughs) they -hmm. just wrote for a different audience but they did exactly the same thing and um yeah so i think that's where we are and that has no real reason to be bundled with a publication there's no reason why you know Paul Krugman doesn't gain the only thing Paul Krugman gains from being at the New York Times is marketing. Right. The reason why a Substack writers won't uh displace me- major media publications soon is not actually about quality. It's about bundling because you have to pay, you know, the amount you pay for a single Substack is maybe one third or in some cases even one half of what you'd pay for a major media publication. So if you really just want to read one person every day, then that's great. Those people subscribe to a bunch of sub stacks or maybe just one sub stack. If you have a lot of money, you could subscribe to a lot of sub stacks. But the point is your average person who wants to read some opinion writing and analysis every day, uh, if you want to read a whole bunch of different writers every day and not pay much money, you subscribe to a publication, right? If what you want to read is, is like, op-eds, uh, you want to read op-eds from like 12 different people or 40 different people, and you want to not pay that much money for it. You don't want to pay for 40 different Substack subscriptions. Well, instead you subscribe to the wall street journal, um, or, you know, or New York times or any of those, and then you get a whole bunch of these things. And so um, Substack will probably filter away some of the more popular writers. So, you know, if you have a big popular following, then essentially you have no reason not to go independent because people would rather just read your stuff all day like people would rather just read Madaglasis 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 than read like 20 different new york times people there are, you know so so in that sense some of the more popular writers will be all drawn to go independent and that will have an a sort of a selection effect where the people who remain at the big publications are less popular they're sort of more like you know fade into a crowd kind of people so you might even end up with this equilibrium where people go to um, major publications as sort of their first career move as an opinion writer. And then if they make it, if people like their stuff, then they go indie and then they leave the New York times and then they go to Substack.
0: Yeah. That's an interesting overview. And, um, as a very like clear way of, of laying it out, I think, and a, a couple questions sort of coming out of it. One is, um, you know, I've thought of sort of what you just described a little bit in the context of like education as well, especially when, COVID flipped things to remote, like fully remote for universities in particular for a while. Um, I was like, you know, some of these more like popular professors, every university sort of has like their few most popular professors and whatnot. And like, I was wondering, you know, can those people split off? I didn't really see it happen too much. Maybe it happened. I just really wasn't aware of it. But can these like really popular professors split off and, you know, you don't need to leverage the Harvard name or the Michigan name or whatever the university might be You just have enough sort of respect for yourself, uh, you know, whether it's from online or just university reputation, whatever it is, you can go and do your own thing and make a heck of a lot more money doing, um, you know, online education. There can be a physical component as well or whatever, but you can sort of like do your own thing. Um, And maybe it's not in the context of like on your way to a college degree, but it's just people who are interested in learning from that individual and willing to pay the price for it. Um,
1: Yeah, but remember that professors are primarily researchers, not teachers like a professor teaches but a professor's main job is to do research at least at an r1 university
0: so does that break the you know what i was saying basically that makes that not feasible from your perspective
1: yep 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 um and so basically what's going on there is that professors are with an institution because it allows them to do research um yeah and so um you could imagine unbundling the university, but it would be very, very difficult. Uh, there, a lot of stuff has to happen before that uh, university unbundling happens. But most people think of professors primarily as teachers because that's how they interact with professors. You take, you go to undergrad, you take classes from a professor. You think this is the professor's job. The professor can't wait to be done teaching that class so they can get back to uh, you know their labs. Writing. Their yeah.
0: Plans. Does it depend, I mean, maybe, you know, I'm I'm one of those people that you just named, but it, does it depend on sort of the discipline, how much of their time and energy is weighted towards research versus teaching?
1: Mm, maybe it should, ideally, but in practice, it doesn't, because research is what gets professors what they really want, which is intellectual prestige among their peers. Sure. Uh, you don't get any prestige for teaching. Um, you get, in fact, you lose a little prestige for teaching. Although you shouldn't, because teaching is great, because um, it helps you solidify the basic concepts uh, that you may have forgotten just doing advanced stuff. And it um, you know makes you explain stuff uh, over and over so that you are always understanding the basic concepts as you're doing re- your research. So it is useful for the professors, but they don't think it is. And professors typically hate teaching. Oh, um, well, some professors like teaching. I, I shouldn't say that. But it's uh, it's kind of a samey sort of thing. You know, It's the same every year. It's routine. It's and you notice that um, when you look at lecturers who or you know are adjuncts who just do teaching and don't do research with the university, those people get paid a lot less and they get almost no intellectual prestige from what they do. Like you, you find someone who's an econ 101 lecturer that all they do is teach econ and that no one is going to listen to what that person thinks about the economy, right? Unless they're a popular blogger as well, but no one's gonna no one's gonna listen to them just because they're a lecturer who teaches econ 101 very low on the status totem pole the way you get high on the intellectual status totem pole is research not teaching so that's what professors think that their real job is even as other people just sort of see them as teachers
0: yeah it's um sorry ahead. no
1: that's it yeah
0: oh yeah um it's interesting i i like didn't know this and um i'm just thinking about it like you know obviously sort of education you know arguably when you're younger but I would say like, you know, through college and and stuff, it's like pretty important. And, uh, to think about it as just a second priority for everyone who's responsible for delivering it. Um, like how, how did that, is that problematic from your perspective or, um, well, it is a
1: bit weird, right? Because you've got people who, you know, have this dual job and what happens when one part becomes more important than the other? Like, what if we need a bunch of teachers, but then we run out of research to do in a field? What if we need a bunch of people to learn history, but then historical research has basically run its course to the point where people are now just inventing bullshit, you know, revisionist theories about how actually like the Nazis were good or whatever? Well, I mean, probably, probably not, but they invent stupid revisionist theories all the time. And maybe people have to keep churning out that stupid revisionism and actually reducing our aggregate stock of knowledge because they're using it as a signaling device to get a job that's fundamentally just a teaching job that any lecturer should be able to do. And so that's on one side. On the other side, you can have, um, you know, people whose main job is is research, uh, you know, being required to teach classes, to, you know, teach a bunch of classes and that's taking them away from their research. Uh, you could have that as well. You can also, also you know, the way the the hiring works doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense because professors are hired, you know, based on their research that they've done, it's, it's your publication record that gets you hired, not your teaching ability, your, your teaching experience, and blah, 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 is like way down the list. And so professors get hired based on research. So that might mean people are not getting taught by people who are hired, because they're good teachers, it might be the lecturers are actually better at teaching some classes. And so this weird bundling that we've created, uh, which is a historical accident, because we basically did it by combining two university systems into one, um, the way we, the way we, and I can tell that story, it's pretty brief, but then, um, this weird hybrid system doesn't necessarily have, this isn't necessarily the way we should always do it. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe you can just tell that story if it is brief. Cause I, I don't know. It and I think a lot of people probably don't.
1: So basically universities began as two different things, the British system and the German system. And the British system was very focused on, um, liberal arts education basically you had highly respected sort of humanities professors teaching you know being like these these sages who would teach the the usually rich young people um you know things at like cambridge and oxford and whatever uh you would teach them philosophy and the classics and blah 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 liberal arts education sort of a, a finishing school for you know the the aristocracy and wannabe aristocracy and rich people that's how it started right it eventually became much more inclusive and and then you can go to college for free, no matter who you are, and blah blah blah. Um, but but at the beginning it was this liberal arts education, um, and then and focused on teaching. And then in Germany you had this uh, scientific research universities that did you know teaching, but the teaching was primarily practical education. Um, of like you know we do chemistry here, we do chemistry research, and we're going to teach you how to do chemistry research, so then you can do chemistry research with us. So it was all about research. The German universities. And America basically mashed those, took those things and just mashed them together. So our undergraduate education is very much British, um, in that we emphasize a, a general education. We want to create well-rounded individuals. We, you know, like we teach humanities and, and all that stuff. And then, um, and people really really complain when I have to take technical classes as well. And then for the graduate education, it's very much the old German model where it's like we're training you for a research job you're essentially apprenticed researchers as a grad student and you're taught this because you're going to actually do it right you're not just getting general educated so you can go out there and be a middle manager somewhere in middle america and like now you know something about economics too and you know about history cool you're you're you know you know more but it's not you know it's um that's that's the sort of british model and then the german model is like we train grad students in chemistry so you can do chemistry research
0: yeah, I I did know like the or at least I, I thought that um, the German model generally is like a little bit more of like an apprenticeship type of thing. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Germany's always
1: I, been very apprenticeship focused.
0: Yeah, and I, I didn't You're realize. It, a, yeah. Go on.
1: No, sorry.
0: Uh, I was just gonna say I didn't I didn't realize like sort of the the history of university as you laid it out, but it, it sort of makes sense. Um, so going back to the media bit. um, how do you think, you know, people obviously like the trends, if you see on any of the charts, like their institutional trust seems to be going down. Generally, one of these institutions is media, um, certainly not the only one, but, you know, in a in a world where people and, you know, correct me if you, if you disagree with the premise, but in a world where people are losing trust in like the media brands, which, you know, used to maybe be very helpful for giving a no name writer. That sort of, you know, trust implicitly because they're a part of the brand. When that's sort of flipped on its head and people don't trust the institution anymore, the media institution, is it easier to sort of find an individual that you can trust, whether it's you or Matt Iglesias or whoever it might be on Substack and sort of concentrate your information, you know, input to or, or you know, the output that you take in to like a few individuals rather than blindly trusting publications? Or how do you think about those sort of elements and how they play off of each other? And is it going to be more of like a balance um, where, you know, you do subscribe to a few individuals, but then you have the publications that you like for sort of the general news? Because um, this stuff, you know, it's, it's very important, like where people get their information and whose opinions they read, it sort of informs their own perspectives. And I would think that this you know changing media landscape that we have whether it's Substacks or podcasts or whatever it might be this emerging class of prominent individuals who have audiences the sizes of traditional media publication brands um it seems to maybe have a you know possibility of changing things quite a bit I'm curious to hear your perspective on
1: that uh I honestly I don't know like I don't actually have much of a perspective you might say I have no opinion on this. Um I don't know why trust in media has decreased, to be honest. I think um it's easy to tell the story where we used to have a few big sort of government sanctioned public, you know, like broadcasting companies like ABC, C B S NBC. And then you had the big newspapers which were very concentrated because of the difficulty of distributing a large print publication, meant you couldn't you really tended toward just having a few of them. You have your local paper, but you have these, giant national paper. And so then media was really concentrated because of this. And you could say that that caused everyone to just kind of, you know, trust the media because they didn't see a lot of alternative sources who said, no, CBS lies, you know, and you did, if you just didn't see that, then maybe you'd suspect that you weren't being fed the exact truth, but then you'd have no real alternative. Yeah, sure. I trust the media. Um, But then, you know, after you had fragmentation, after you had the end of the Fairness Doctrine, after you had Uh, various laws that allowed more competition in the media space, and after you had, of course, the internet, then no matter what a media publication does, you're going to have people just screaming that it's lying all the time, right? So anything that I write, someone's out there screaming that it's a lie, right? And so Substack's interesting when you bring it into this equation because Substack with, you know, because you have to subscribe to, you know, a, a, a few expensive publications, It might be that people trust the media because now they're seeing their, now they're, now the media becomes, you know, like three, four sub stackers instead of like a million people arguing and screaming at each other. So maybe that will help. But then at the same time, you're still going to have social media. And no matter what people say, you're going to have people out there yelling, like, it's all a lie. The media lies to you. And of course, people yell this on both sides, right? Like Democrats yell this, Republicans yell this, and they each, you know, of course they each think that their media is is trustworthy and that the other media is just a hellhole of partisan lies. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't know if that situation on social media is going to be fixed anytime soon or what could fix that. I think that if I had to guess why trust in the media has fallen, it's just that our media ecosystem allows, you know, opportunistic shouters to just denounce any media story that comes out. So you're constantly seeing anything denounced
0: yeah that makes sense um and i think so i mean basically you're saying that i mean i'm not trying to put words in your mouth or whatever but if i'm sort of hearing you right the media has not changed materially in terms of you know these big publications but in terms of their accuracy or their style or anything like this but um there's just simply much more room for counter arguments and moreover the most extreme like shouters basically are you know tend to get engagement and things like this and so um whether it's you know the left or the right there's always someone on the other side who basically wants to denounce the whole thing and no one knows basically what to trust when when they're seeing all of that
1: right yeah i think um yeah that's that's pretty much it um In other words, no matter what you trust now, you've got to trust something that a lot of people will be very audibly screaming is a lie. To trust any media, however true it is, however it isn't. You know, I don't actually know how much the 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 actual quality of media has changed. Um I hear people say the New York Times has gotten worse, but I've never really read the New York Times, to be honest. Um I I have, you know. I think the New York Times is kind of mediocre, to be honest. Um, And then, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, um, but it's really big. So it'd be difficult not to be mediocre because it's just sort of this giant omnibus paper. Hmm. And so, um, yeah, uh, so I think, I don't know if it's changed. I can tell you that in the years since I started working at Bloomberg until now, when I no longer do, I think that Bloomberg's, quality as a journalistic organization has improved that's the publication with which i have the greatest intimacy and familiarity and i will tell you that bloomberg has gotten bloomberg news has gotten better bloomberg opinion uh lost you know some some people but bloom including myself obviously but then bloomberg news uh just the journalism aspect of it has gotten better over the years but then you know better doesn't mean perfect i mean so the thing about news is that it's uh the name comes from the word new and so what that means is that you're you're getting information really really fast right you're getting information fast and when you get information fast from from people who are journalists who don't you know deeply know what's going on you're you're i mean journalists you know know something about like tech or finance or or geopolitics or whatever they're reporting on but they don't, you know, they don't know as much as the people who are actually doing it, because usually, you know, they they often have a reporting beat. And so they they try to do their best, but you're always going to have a little more speed and generalness and lack of fact checking and lack of like pondering. It's just it's a there's a speed accuracy trade off in information. Mm-hmm. And that's true, whether it's it's news or or financial trading signals, or whatever you want, there's a speed accuracy trade-off. The faster you get information, the noisier it's going to be. And that's true for news. And so I would estimate that about 50% of what you read in the news is not true. Um, Mostly, it's because journalists just don't understand what's going on. Sometimes it's because journalists sort of fill in the gaps because they have to, like, create a narrative. Occasionally, it's because journalists, like, try to push a bullshit narrative, although I think that's much, much rarer than people think it it is but i would say mostly it's just people don't know what's going on so it, there's a, a fog of of war if you will and so because of that i would estimate 50% of news is wrong and um and that's better that's that's a lot better than you would get just uh, not knowing anything right because it's not like it's not like we're talking about news isn't like a coin flip or something where 50% is just even odds in fact news tells you stuff that you wouldn't have even known otherwise um and then 50% is wrong but then 50% is a lot to get wrong and so you're always going to be able to find bullshit in the news no matter how well it's done or no matter how good the journalists are at their jobs and how honest they are
0: so what do you like how do you think of that 50% you know news that's that's not on point that like you were talking earlier about how there's like a very clear separation be- between opinion writers and, and journalists in your mind um uh, and I was sort of, as you were saying that, I was like, well, it it seems, you know, I, obviously I'm not in the industry, you know, I, I don't know, you probably have a much more sophisticated perspective on this. But to me, it's like, it seems like more of a spectrum. And maybe that's me conflating the fact that 50% of news is sort of missing. Um, and I, I don't mean missing, I mean, like, it's 50% is hitting and 50% is missing in terms of what's right and what's accurate. And I'm looking at that piece that's missing and sort of attributing An opinion to what you know in in some cases why that's wrong um you know why it's bs but maybe you think about that a little bit differently
1: yeah so um what am i saying uh so what i'm saying is um that uh for opinion writing it's not even possible to quantify how much is right and how much is wrong because a lot of it is just not even wrong, you know. It's just bullshit. It's it's just narratives like you that you can't be falsified, mm-hmm. right? And I write those. I write those narratives too. Um, you know, I I try to to stick to to facts as much as I can. But people want a narrative to feel like they understand things, and I've got to you know provide that narrative. And sometimes, and and in fact, there are narratives that are more useful and less useful, but there are so many narratives that we'll never be able to have rigorous scientific tests of which narratives are useful and which aren't except in a very few conditions so you know we're spinning narratives isn't all i do a lot of people think that that's all that's opinion writer opinion writer's main job when in fact it's it's um it's only part of it uh, opinion writers synthesize a lot of different sources to get a clear picture of what's going on but that picture in order to communicate that picture to people you have to use you have to we. If you're going to make people understand what's actually going on, you're going to have some pieces of that communication are going to have to be bullshit. Bullshit. Uh. In ter- and when I say bullshit, what I mean is not lies or or anything that's that's incorrect. It's stuff that is just sort of made up, and it doesn't matter whether it's correct or not. Mm-hmm. Uh. And so that's so. That bullshit is necessary for putting real information into people's minds. It's a conduit that allows you to get information into people's minds because it allows them to nod along and say, Aha, hi, understand this thing. And then they, the information fits into like that framework and doesn't just bounce off their skulls. And they're like, okay, what does that mean? So in other words, explanation is always part bullshit. And this is true of scientific theories to a greater degree than anyone realizes, by the way. Um, so in a way we're just making up little scientific theories of like current events on the fly. But, um, With So for opinion writers, it's not even possible to talk about like 50% right, 50% wrong. Okay. But um, I would say that there's some opinion writers out there whose frameworks are just totally broken and who would just see the world through a lens that's just totally inadequate to allowing them to understand things like the people who saw the Silicon Valley Bank collapse this week and blamed it on wokeness if you saw that they're like yeah, oh
0: you're making and, you're making my transition for me so keep going
1: yeah they had diversity statements that must be why their bank collapsed well no it wasn't that has nothing to do with it it's just like that's what these people talk about that's how they understand the world that's their lens through which they view the world and it's a lens that i consider pretty useless like some there yes there's wokeness there's some things that happen because of wokeness but like most stuff doesn't happen because of wokeness and you're really just sort of like you're you're taking your chosen lens and just applying it in in to just everything you see, and so I think that that's what I would. But you can't call that wrong. It's just like I would call it stupid. But then, my job is sort of proving that that's stupid. Well, you know, what better explanation do you have if it's not wokeness? Tell us what it is. And so that's what my job is, right? I'm I have to give people a better alternative to those unhelpful kind of narrative frameworks.
0: Yeah, one interesting thing. I'm not sure if this is. You know, how all well this would work but if you see a given opinion writer that is constantly blaming or you know attributing the causes of situations to the same thing or the same couple of things maybe i mean on the one hand you could say that those things are gen you know genuinely so you know core uh that they're driving everything and maybe that would be the counter that these people would try to make but it would seem like a lot of things that happen um, you know, should have at least somewhat like you shouldn't be able to attribute every situation to the same root problem. Probably. Um, there's probably at least some unique causes to, to various things or separate causes to to things. And so when you see someone just take the classic narrative of, um, you know, this is a woke problem or whatever it is, uh, to the same, to, to, a, to a different problem. And then they just keep applying it to different problems. It's like, I, I start to get a little bit skeptical of that maybe um but you you wrote a couple of pieces on on the silicon valley bank situation i'm sure there's more to come um and i actually just i read them today uh sort of after the storm of the last few days we're recording on you know tuesday march 14th and basically the last six or six five or six days were sort of the the thick of things at least so it seems thus far and a lot of your stuff you know held up Really well. Um, you sort of. Most people were predicting, for example, that there would be a buyout, you know, Sunday night or something like that, of Silicon Valley banks that all the depositors would get some amount of money back, um, you know, immediately as opposed to over time. And there was speculation, you know, maybe it'd be fifty percent Monday, maybe it'd be eighty percent, whatever. Um, and you were writing about how you know it's probably more likely to be a hundred percent just to prevent anything systemic from happening and that the government could step in directly that that doesn't need to be an acquirer. Um, so I think one interesting way to sort of transition the conversation we've been having about the changing media landscape to this specific event is to sort of just hear behind the scenes. Um, you know, we could talk about the event itself as well, obviously, but the behind the scenes of like something like this happens, how do you collect your information? How do you compile it? How do you summarize it, decide what you're going to write about? um just like your whole process of information collection and then writing because obviously you know you're prolific and some of these pieces that you're writing are more you know independent from current events at the given time they're obviously loosely related but this is like a breaking news thing where you are you know picking up the pieces as they come and information changes in real time I think your second piece was like an hour or two before um you know, the, the or exactly government. what
1: I predicted was, in fact, announced.
0: Exactly. So it's like very real time. And I'm just curious to hear how all of that plays out behind the scenes.
1: Oh, um, why did I think that that was going to happen? Well, I saw a I had seen a Washington Post scoop um, from a friend who's a reporter at the Washington Post who has inside sources saying that this is one thing they were contemplating doing. So it sounded very likely to me that this would be done. Um, just knowing the general principles here. And reasoning that we had learned from 2008, Uh, in 2008, we let Lehman fail because a bunch of people were like, well, how are you going to bail these guys out? And it turned out we had to do a lot more bailouts later because we let Lehman fail. I think that we learn our lessons. Um, We don't always learn them quickly or exactly right, but we do learn. And when I saw people proposing this deposit backstop, and I realized how cheap it would be, right, I realized that this isn't going to cost the taxpayer money. Um, you know, and it's, uh, it's pretty minimal intervention, actually. It's just formalizing a deposit guarantee that had been informal since the crisis. Uh, you know, for over a decade now, we've, we've guarantee- we've like always made sure depositors get all their money back informally. And now we're just going to do it formally. Um, at least for in this situation, I thought, okay, well, it's, so it's a minimal intervention. It's not really different from what we're already doing. Just sort of publicly announcing this and creating this like bank funding mechanism to make sure it's all just like formalized. Is not that big a step and everybody's going to be scared that this could be another lehman i don't think it could be another lehman but just a fight you don't want a five percent chance of another lehman that could screw your economy it doesn't you know it doesn't do a lot of harm to sort of formalize the kind of guarantee of deposits that we informally had uh, since 2008 and so i thought they're probably going to do this like i would give them I was giving them in my mind like a 95% chance of doing it. And then they did it two hours later. So like I was right. Uh, but I knew exactly what they were considering and I knew why it would be an attractive option to them. And I couldn't think of a better alternative, except you know, I couldn't think of any any alternative that they would do unless they just made a gigantic mistake. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, well, this is what they'll probably do. And uh that was right.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The the informally Making sure the depositors get 100% of their deposits was something I saw. Like, you know, you linked a Google Sheet in in one of your pieces, and uh, that was really interesting to take a look at just to see, like, actually, you know, here are all of the cases of bank failures because people don't hear about bank failures on a day to day basis. So when, you know, one is slapped on the cover of mainstream media and all over your Twitter, and you're seeing it's the third biggest one, and the first one was Lehman, and the second one is Washington Mutual or whatever, you're like, and it's 2008, you're like, Okay, this seems you know pretty bad. Uh, you assume it's somewhat unprecedented and you start to just you know people start to panic. everyone's saying take your money out of the banks, the small banks and move it into big banks, all this stuff. Um, you see a sheet like that that shows, you know, yeah, these these bank failures haven't been as big as Silicon Valley Bank in terms of their assets, but um, in almost all of these cases, people have gotten above and beyond the FDIC guaranteed 250k um, you know, no problem. It starts to add a bit of reassurance, I think. Um, and you know, you start to think, well, this isn't maybe something as different as what we've seen in the past, but at the same time, the fact that it feels different to a lot of people may be enough to like psychologically, you know, panic can create the bank run in and of itself. Um, so even as of, you know, yesterday, I was like, just sort of crossed my fingers that no other balls dropped because, um, you know, like we just, you, you didn't really know what was going to happen exactly. Even if the facts were the facts, like people could panic and bank runs are self-fulfilling and it just felt like a bit of a precarious position to be in. Um, so anyway, you don't see this as being something that's super systemic or putting, you know, the US economy at any material risk in the near term is that a, a right read of sort of how you're seeing things right now
1: um yeah yeah i think uh the bigger the bigger problem that has nothing to do with svb or the current uh you know deposit measure that they took the bigger problem here is just that raising interest rates makes a lot makes treasury bonds long dated treasury bonds like 10 year treasuries whatever lose value right? They lose their value, which makes banks more vulnerable to runs. So you have, because if your assets are worth less, then you can't get as much cash for them in a quick sale. So if people yank their deposits, you can't get as much cash to pay them. So that lowers the amount of deposits that people have to yank in order to bring down any given bank. Does that make sense?
0: Yep. Okay.
1: So then, so the raising interest rates lowers the value of, tre- of long dated treasuries, And uh, and that has weakened our financial system. And yet inflation is still running hot. So we're going to have to do more interest rate hikes, which means more weaknesses for banks, which means that um, we are probably going to end up having to guarantee all unsecured deposits, at least until the inflationary episode is over, because raising interest rates will just make banks less and less solvent. And Silicon Valley Bank was just the canary in the coal mine in this sense.
0: Yeah. So what do you think about, you know, um, if, like the Fed can guarantee all deposits, but, and that can give people confidence that I can stay with, you know, my medium sized or, or small bank and not have to worry about losing my deposit. But is there yeah. any, you know, like, despite them guaranteeing that, is it, re- wouldn't it be reasonable? This is the part I don't really get as of now. Like, you know, I obviously want my deposits to be safe. I don't see any reason to not move my money to a big bank where it seems to be you know even safer even if they're saying you know my deposits are good with the medium and small banks if I play things out and a lot of banks are in trouble due to the rate hikes and you know the Fed says they're going to you know backstop all the deposits and everything's fine but if I don't really trust them, I I wouldn't ordinarily want to like spread this on a big platform or anything. I don't know that many listeners. It, it doesn't make a difference. But um, like if I'm thinking, okay, well, so some more, you know, they continue the hikes, some more banks are going down at some point, are they going to have to pull back on the, you know, we're doing this in perpetuity? Like I think they only earmarked what, like 25 billion or something um, that covers oh. like the start, but there's like this broader bank no, run no, that no, I think that's... it would be going.
1: It's it's much more than that. It's it the the insurance fund basically it can go up a lot higher than twenty five billion.
0: Like and how Twenty five
1: I... billion is something else. It's like the government's sort of twenty five billion dollars of guarantee. It's 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 too annoying to explain. It's boring. The point is that um, this isn't like a simple ways of understanding. It's like oh, it's a twenty five billion dollar bailout. Well, no, it's not. Um sure. In fact, it 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 might just be like, it's probably just a zero degree. It's a $0 bailout because SVB is probably solvent. Um, and so, you you know, sure it had lost money on bonds, but probably what it has left is enough to pay the depositors or almost. So like the actual cost of it will be either zero or very small. And that cost will be borne by other banks.
0: Right. Okay. Um, well, it's, I sort of, uh, you know, we ended up talking about media for a while. And, uh, don't want to go too deep into this issue because we're we're coming up on time, but I wanted to end with um separate thing that something you've written quite a bit about. It's why you're sort of um, you know, taking a, a techno techno optimistic view on uh the 2020s. You said that when you when you first started the Substack, this was gonna be like a main thing that that was sort of important to you to be explicitly tech techno-op, techno optimist. Um, and you wrote a piece like you know, tech, techno optimism for the 2020s, which you talked about you know, space and energy. And um, I can't remember if it was talking too much about AI, or if that was some of your more recent posts about 2023 and whatnot. But, um, you know, to end on, on sort of more an optimistic note, uh, curious, you know, if you could give sort of like a general outlook about what's exciting these days, what you're paying attention to, and and what you're most optimistic about technologically for the uh, several years ahead.
1: Oh, well, you know, so I um. I, I don't want to push techno optimism where it's not warranted, right? Like I don't want to, I don't want to force myself to be optimistic. I just am optimistic. I think that there's so, you know, um, we have, we have, hmm, um, we have a, a self-regulating techno system, technological system. I don't really, it's not really self-regulating. What happens is that when, when innovation, when, when progress starts to run out, we put a lot of effort into finding new things and opening up new fields. And so there was, you know, when when progress in bigger engines, faster airplanes, faster cars, more power-hungry appliances, all those sort of physical, you know, progress came to a halt in the 1970s. Um, rapid progress in those energy-intensive technologies came to a halt when energy got more expensive after the oil shock of 1973. And we and for a while there was a productivity slowdown and we said, oh, my God, we need to invent more stuff. Um, And so we poured a lot of resources in inventing something of a different type, which was IT. So we invented, you know, computers and the Internet and smartphones and, you know, spreadsheets and blah, blah, blah. And that wave of innovation is still going to some extent. I mean, you see AI now coming out. I think GPT-4 just came out uh, today or yesterday. And, um, and so you still see some of that innovation going, but I think a lot of that is slowing down. You know, there's like a, a marginal benefit. Almost everyone has a smartphone now. There's a marginal benefit from cramming more apps on it. You can't spend any more time on social media than we already do. Um, businesses are now fully digitized, all these things. Um, you can make slightly better like SaaS, business apps, whatever. Uh, so there's still some progress, just as there's been some progress in airplanes and cars and appliances since 1973. But the progress is just slowing and so, I, but I think we have, uh, you know, except in AI, that's like the only like, you know, IT, rapid progress IT thing because that was sort of a later field that got opened up. But I think that um, we've started to pour resources into other things. We've started to pour research resources into energy tech with batteries and solar and hydrogen and all other kinds of cool stuff. Um, we've, But I think batteries are the most interesting one. We started to pour resources into... Um, uh, into biotech with mRNA vaccines and CRISPR and blah, blah, And this, and of course we poured resources into AI, but those sort of, um, and, and, and space to some degree, right? We're, we're making space launch cheaper. And, but, um, but I think that, you know, energy biotech and AI are probably the, the three biggies. And, you know, when, when our IT, uh, you know, our IT revolution started slowing down, as soon as it starts slowing down, this is, this is you know, a couple decades ago, as soon as we could sort of see that this was going to slow down, we started just pouring resources into these other things. And now it's come to fruition. And, you know, the amazing vaccination effort, the COVID vaccination effort is just the first of many such things. Uh, you'll soon be able to like grow your organs in a lab, you know, whatever. Um, cool stuff in biotech, gene edit your kids, make your dog immortal. I don't know. Um, that's That cool stuff's going to happen there uh energy technology is just energy is going to be super portable you're gonna have little drones and robots flying around and finally have the robot future everyone's been wanting uh cheap space launch could take us to mars i don't know if that actually makes any economic sense but i think we'll be able to do it um i think uh um and then of course ai is gonna like write a bunch of stuff for us and design a bunch of stuff and just do cool cool things like that plus a whole bunch of predictive you know stuff that seems almost like magic um between all those things I'm really optimistic about our the increase in our capabilities. Now, the one note of caution I'll say is that new technologies often get used for evil. They used for war and destruction. Industrial technology got used for World War II, you know. Um, And I think we're we're now seeing how information technology can be used to create a world of misinformation, as well as doing things like cyber attacks, Um, but especially just to just to spread lies everywhere. I think we're now seeing that, and I think uh, you know um, trust in media has some going down has something to do with that and i think that um uh, you know we will see the new technologies used for evil we're going to see people try to make bioweapons we're going to see people use you know batteries and ai to do like killer drones killer robots we're going to see you know ai probably accelerate it, it'll be a force multiplier for the internet liars for just the people spreading misinformation on the internet And so we're gonna see all kinds of bad uses by bad people. So being a techno optimist means I'm optimistic that we will be able to create all this cool stuff. That doesn't mean that I think that every use that people put it to is gonna be good, right? Many people put technology to bad uses just as they have for every technology we've ever created in the past. And, um, And we just have to minimize, we have to rearrange our society so as to minimize the bad uses of technology and maximize the good ones so that technology becomes a purely beneficial force. Or as much as we can make it.
0: Yeah, no, definitely it can be used for good or bad, and uh, I think it's, it's a good place to leave off. Uh, a lot, a lot for people to consider, and, and we're up on time. But uh, I want to thank you anyway for uh, for coming on, and uh, you know, interesting going back and forth on a bunch of these things. A bunch more I could talk about, but um, great, great hearing your perspective on all this. And uh, where can people go if they want to, you know, follow you on Twitter or uh, you know, read your Substack, everything like that.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, my, my sub stack is called no Noah opinion. N O A H, P I N I O N. There's no O in the middle. Sometimes people hallucinate an O, but it's just no opinion. Um, and that's the name of the sub stack. You can Google it, or you can go to no Um, and then Twitter, my Twitter handles the exact same. It's just no opinion.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again, Noah. great talking with you and uh, appreciate you taking the time. Cool. Thanks so much for having me on.